Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Sean Saint, who is the co-founder and CEO of Companion Medical, which is the company that created the InPen, which is America's only FDA-cleared smart insulin pen and app system. And the InPen actually combines their innovative diabetes management app with a Bluetooth-enabled pen injector to simplify the constant tracking, monitoring, and calculating required for insulin therapy. Basically, with the InPen, you can live life less complicated is quite the system and I had such a good time talking with with Sean in this episode as he shares his whole story and actually he is now a type 1 diabetic and he has 15 plus years of experience with medical devices and he brings that experience to the company to create truly something remarkable that's going to help a lot of people in this episode we go through his whole journey but also how the company was founded where it's going how this innovative system came to be and so much more as always the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast you can support the show leave a rating and review please please do so over on apple Podcasts. we really appreciate it helps more people find the show and uh, always as well the just go grind newsletter the weekly grind comes out every single friday so i release that with tips tools and strategies for launching and growing a business if you go to justgogrind.com slash newsletter you can sign up without further ado here is my interview with sean saint co-founder and ceo of companion medical Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, and after you know looking into your company a little bit, it's definitely fascinating, and your career as well is so intriguing. And where I want to start with is how did you kind of first get started with, you know, knowing you wanted to be in the, like medical devices or this type of industry in the first place? Yeah, it's a little bit of a circuitous route. My uh, Obviously, my background is mechanical engineering, but my entire family really is in the medical field, doctors, nurses, physician assistants, the whole bit. So it became pretty obvious to me that if I didn't get into medicine in some way, I wasn't going to be allowed to Thanksgiving dinner. So <laughs> I sort of had to. But no, you know, really, I, I uh, by accident, really, I got into my first medical device job back in 1998 with a cardiovascular company and just sort of realized the pull of the medical field. And how actually helping people on a day to day basis is so amazingly powerful versus just, you know, designing something that might, uh, you know, a consumer product or what have you. Yeah. And there's so many different industries, obviously, right? And you can you can make a career out of really anything, especially like with your background. And to do it in medical devices seems like such a rewarding thing. And, and of course, like if people obviously don't know, you have type 1 diabetes. How did that come about the diagnosis? <laughs> yeah. Um, pretty ironic for me. I'd been in the diabetes space about a decade when that happened. And for me personally, I just was out on a run one day and ran out of energy and, and knew that something wasn't right. I understood my, you know, my exercise capability pretty well and, um, was thinking about it and checked my blood sugar because the symptoms just fit and my blood sugar was 400. So that right there tells you I have diabetes. Um, but that doesn't really happen to people who have been in the, in the space for, you know, a decade, most of us are either got into the diabetes for random reasons like myself or got in specifically because they had type one, but very few people are diagnosed after they're in the industry. So a bit of a shock, but, uh, <laughs> we, we live with it and it, uh, it definitely changed my perspective on some things and in many ways led to the development of companions. So I have to be thankful for that. Yeah. And getting that then. So 
I mean, did you immediately like, okay, what's the game plan? Here we go. Like, how did you go through that once you, once you were diagnosed? Uh, you mean with companion specifically? Yeah. Like going from that to like, then eventually companion. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I, uh, you know, for a, a good long time, I, I was focused specifically on, on what diabetes meant to me and, and how I was going to live my life with it and how I was not going to be limited in any way. And, this, that, and the other thing. And it took me a little while to actually take my own experience with diabetes and relate it back to my job and then further relate it to everybody else with diabetes. And in this case, the reasons why they might not want to use the product I was developing at the time. And I used my own experience and thought about it and started to understand their perspective a little better, something that I had never been able to do before. And that ultimately led to the desire on my part to bring better technologies to the 93% of people who use insulin who didn't have access to the, the best ones and ultimately the development of companion. Yeah. And then understanding that, you know, you want to start this company, like how did it actually come together in terms of the people in terms of, you know, okay, we're going to start with this product. Like how did that come together then? I don't know if I wanted to start the company or not. Uh, <laughs> it was a, almost something I sort of backed into. Um, what I, I did want to do is is find the best way to bring better technologies to, again, the 93% of people. And to be honest with you, I thought somebody else must be doing this. I'll just go work with them. And in doing my research and in trying to find who that company was, I wasn't able to find somebody doing what I thought needed to be done as well as I thought it, it needed to be done. And I ended up having a chat with my co-founder, Mike, and we just realized we could do this. And it sort of happened almost by accident, right? You, you know, you're making notes one day about what this product ought to be and, you know, whether or not there's a market and whether or not there's competitors. And you realize one day that, oh, holy smokes, I just wrote the first part of a business plan. <laughs> that's just step one of, of the journey to, to start in the company. But um, I almost couldn't tell you the day that we said, okay, this is going to be our very own company. Yeah. And and with that too, I'm wondering like how long was that kind of process of thinking about it and, oh, they're you know, doing the research and seeing, oh, is this even out there yet? No, it's not out there. Like roughly how long? Because a lot of people listening to this show are thinking about starting businesses and they have ideas. They may think of it as a side hustle, but for you, like how kind of long was that process between kind of thinking about it for the first time and then eventually starting this? Yeah. So well, it was a process. First of all, I mean, I, I couldn't put my finger on one date where I just say that's where the company started, except for incorporation, of course. Yeah. Um, but I would say from when I really started to put pen to paper and take notes on the topic to when we raised our first money, which is where you you certainly can't deny the fact that the company's operating at that point, was about 10 months. Okay. So it was pretty pretty significant amount of time to kind of figure that out. And then you said you had a co-founder with you as well. Was it just you, the two of you to start with? And then you just started creating the team from there? Like, how did that go? Yeah, it was two of us to start with. And then, um, you know, I, I made the decision that I was going to go full-time with the company. And, and he chose to not at that time. And, and we went out and we found a couple of more people. And so it ended up being a team of three people at the time, uh, none of whom were paid, of course. And yeah. the, the founding team of the company when we first raised money. And then our, our co-founder, the person that I, Mike, again, I ended up coming on later, uh, several years afterwards. You know, I'm always kind of fascinated with that dynamic too. You mentioned like, you know, people come on, 
not being paid right away and you have to sell them on this this vision. Like, how do you do that and convince them and get them on board? I've talked to some other entrepreneurs and they have different opinions on this, but I'm curious as to how you did that with these people. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it really depends on the individual person. And certainly there's a million people that I could never have convinced to come on board full time for, for no money at that point. Um, we all have our own goals, you know, in, in one of our founders cases, he, he knew me really well. We'd worked together before he understood diabetes really well. And I think he saw the opportunity and he was also able to continue consulting at a previous company to, you know, put, put food on the table. Uh, yeah. and in your case, um, somebody who just had time, uh, they were sort of in between jobs, great person. And, um, they were able to come on board and, and put their available time towards something. Uh, until we raised some money, which of course we did and then started paying. Um, but you know, it's true. There's, there's a lot of people who don't have the, the ability to go work full time on a company while trying to put food on the table with their previous company. And it's unfortunate, but, but it is the way the world works. Yeah. And that's obviously difficult. And, you know, when starting this company then, so I'm, I'm curious as to like, you knew in that 10 month period, trying to figure out solve this problem essentially. And you said it, you couldn't find the competitors were out there. This wasn't being made yet. You launched this company. You know, what was that kind of initial then roadmap once you started getting things rolling in terms of this is the first iteration we want to get out there? Like what was that kind of initial thing you had in place? Yeah. So, you know, ordinarily I'm a planner and I, I like <laughs> to have the next 10 years of my life planned out to a T and I tried to do that and it came down to give up. That's just not going to happen. Um, what we have to believe here is that there are going to be challenges every day and we're going to solve them. And we didn't know exactly what that first product would look like. We tried to, you know, we tried to have it completely designed and even, you know, maybe even produced before we ever raised money, but it's just not possible. Um, at least in our case with a physical medical device, but we yeah. learned to know that we could solve any of these problems that we had to. And, um, you know, as we raised money, we iterated on what the device should be. And it changed a lot between the very founding of the company and the actual first sale of the product. But it didn't change fundamentally. It changed a lot, but not what the company was trying to do or what the product was trying to do. We do have a, a pretty significant product roadmap here. There's a lot that the product can do in the future that I'll be honest with you, I didn't even consider. <laughs> when we were first starting the company yeah well, that first product the inpen which fundamentally brings the database benefits of an insulin pump to insulin pen users really didn't evolve all that much yeah you knew that was what you wanted to do that was the yeah, point and that's exactly what we delivered on and you know with any entrepreneur kind of making something especially if it's going to be a, a physical product you have to iterate how did you then how did you iterate and get feedback and kind of adjust things to get to that first product then the InPen? Yeah, great question. There's really a lot of answers to that. Uh, I mean, certainly we, you know, from day one of the company, we were out talking to everybody. And I know that there's a contingent that thinks you should be in stealth mode for a while. We really never were. Um, I would talk to every person with diabetes and every endocrinologist and every certified diabetes educator that would possibly listen to tell them about what the product was going to be. And I listened an awful lot. And I also didn't listen some of the time, or maybe I did listen. 
disregarded. Um, because, you know, we, we found a lot of people like, well, you know, if this were a thing, somebody would have built it. And it's that weird circular argument um, that we've seen with so many different innovations in the past. Um, and sometimes you just have to believe that this is a, a very important technology that hasn't previously been available. And the beauty in our case is it wasn't this enormous leap. Um, you know, Steve Jobs in the iPhone, right? He was asking people to, you know, to type with their thumbs on on no keyboard. Yeah. Um, we really didn't know if people wanted to do that or not among other differences. But in our case, we were combining two pre-existing technologies in a way that I thought was pretty intuitive. Um, when you first explained it to people, they didn't always think that. But when they were <laughs> able to see the product that I had in my head, they usually thought it too. And that's, I think, been the case. Yeah. Well. And as you've gone through that process too, because it's something that that process of talking to potential customers is so important, often forgotten for people who just want to build something, put it out there, which is, there's different trains of thought on that. But I mean, what were you kind of looking for when you were talking to people? What kind of feedback were you searching for on the product? I'm curious if you remember any of those questions you asked or like what you were kind of looking for from them. Yeah, that's a great question. So as you mentioned, I have type one diabetes and I have to be very, very careful about not designing a product for myself because <laughs> I'm I'm one person, I'm a valid person, but um, you know, not everybody is me. And what we tried to do is design a product for the most, sort of the most broadly applicable segment of the population. In other words, most people. Um, so what were, what questions were we asking? What we didn't ask is what do you need? Because in general, I think people are pretty bad at asking that, answering that question. Yeah. We instead asked what bugs you? And a, a very smart friend of mine, that I worked with in the past always said that, um, you know, when you're talking to somebody, when you hear him express frustration, that's an opportunity for a product. Uh, he said it differently. I won't go into how he actually said it, but, <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's the same thing. You're talking to somebody with diabetes and you say, Hey, what's challenging about the disease for you? You know, what are your problems? And you've just heard opportunities to solve those problems. And that what we heard time and time again was honestly the pain in the butt factor. Um, with calculating doses, with carrying devices, with the size of these things, with the way they look, it was all use case type stuff, right? Nobody ever says, well, I, I need a Bluetooth insulin pen, right? right? That's not what they think about. They just think about how they want to live with this stuff, or more accurately, they think about how they don't want to live with what they're using today. And it's our job then to solve those problems in a way that doesn't create new problems. Yeah. And with that too, then how do you kind of disseminate between things you're going to ignore and things you're going to listen to. I mean, it might be difficult in some situations to kind of do that. I guess if you're looking for problems, a problem is a problem, but you even have potentially multiple problems or multiple different things where you can't necessarily implement all of them right away. Like, How do you choose then from that to be like, this is going to be version one, you know? Yeah, great question. And I don't know that there's a wonderful answer except to say, <laughs> that, you know, that's the beauty, I think, of, you know, at least my own history, I have so many friends with diabetes and I have so many friends who are doctors who manage people with diabetes. And after the 100th or 150th conversation you had, you start to realize there's only about four topics that come up every, you know, time and time again. There's another 30 topics that come up once, but, you know, that's, that's how applicable that is, right? One out of 150 or whatever. But, yeah. uh, but those topics that come up time and time again, those are real problems that everybody experiences. And 
you know, we, we couldn't have not attacked those if we'd wanted to. I mean, if, if we didn't hit those things, the product wouldn't have been real. Yeah, totally. And, it and comes with, you know, I, there's no way to do that that I know of other than just an awful lot of darn talking. <laughs> yeah, that's, and at what point, I mean, with that too, just hitting this point a little bit more because it's something I think is important, but, and with that talking to people, at what point then do you kind of, do you ever stop? getting that feedback or do you change at some point to, you know, okay, we got, we got a good, good chunk of feedback. Now we're going to really implement these things. Like, how does that go for you? <laughs> you never stop getting feedback, right? I mean, we, we always need that, but I have a plaque hung over my door. Uh, it says time to shoot the engineer <laughs> and start production. Um, and I think that's really important, right? We always ask for feedback, but we need to say when enough is enough. For the moment and we'll have a gen 2 we'll have a rev 2 but if we don't actually stop and do the best job we can today and put it in the hands of users then you haven't helped anybody uh, and that's obviously very very hard to know when that time is um, but i think as a small company and as a startup company that's one of our superpowers we're able to make decisions like that easier and faster and if we're wrong to recover from them so rather than to spend a million dollars on a, a market research study to show us whether or not exactly what, you know, we have the exact right product and spend yeah. a year doing that, we'll just move. And if we missed a feature, then we'll go back and redesign it. We can do that. Yeah. And with listening to customers, uh, you can then get the feedback to know your next steps, it would seem like. And and there's always like things I've heard too with uh, people talking about entrepreneurship and you know how many, how many more books do you have to read like you, if you haven't done anything with the knowledge or if you haven't created something to get out in the marketplace to then adjust on and do something with. You can't just keep getting that feedback necessarily uh, and not do anything with it. So with that then, with the in-pen, so the first version, I guess, what version are you on now or where are you at now with it currently? Well, we've had some some modifications to the app and what have you. Um, we okay. don't really talk gens too much, um, but we certainly added updates to our reporting capabilities and um, added Dexcom data to our Android device and things like that. But, uh, you know, fundamentally, if you look at our great product pipeline, we're kind of on Rev 1 right now, right? Because some of the things we want to do coming up are so much grander than we're doing today um, that even though in some cases, large updates we've made um, sort of pale in comparison. But I think you were yeah. hitting a minute ago on, you know, that concept of MVP, right? And it's very important. Um, and, and we talk about it all the time, but in the medical device space, it gets a little muddied because we do have to ask the FDA for clearance on our products. So we can't be doing that every day. So now we have to do a little, a little more complete job of adding more to the product than we might think qualifies as a traditional MVP while not adding yeah. a kitchen sink and taking five extra years. But it's just you know, one more piece of math that we have to think about when figuring out what goes into a particular release. Yeah, and with that, like, how do you handle that being, being like FDA compliant? Like, How does that factor in? How do you go back and forth with that, submit things? Like, How does that work exactly? You know, we have a great team here and, and all of us have medical device background. So it's pretty straightforward. I mean, the simple fact is the FDA gets a little bit of a bad rap sometimes, but they're really a pleasure to work with. Um, you know, with any product we, we write up and, they, and there's a, a process, of course, the medical device development process that FDA 
basically tells you how to do these things. You write up what are the needs you're trying to solve? How would you try and solve them? You test to show that those things are in fact the case. You have a risk analysis that shows that you haven't introduced new risks with this, or if you have, you've mitigated them. You submit it all to the FDA, and they'll talk it through with you, and they're really quite helpful. That's awesome. Um, I think that the challenge comes when people fight the FDA, um, which is not a really good idea, right? The FDA is, is trying to do a good job, and we're better off helping them than to try and fight them on it. Yeah, and and with this product too, I mean, obviously once, you, once you've actually created the product, how do you distribute it, get it in the hands of people that you create it for in the first place? <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you're doing a traditional medical device, which is usually going to be distributed through medical means, then you go out and you work with the medical device distributors. We did it a little differently. Our product is reimbursed through a pharmaceutical path, but at the end of the day, there are specific distributors you work with there too, and, and it's complicated, but you get it done. And, and at this point, you can go down to essentially any of the 62,000 retail pharmacies in this country and pick up the in-pen system. Um, that's, uh, we're, we're very proud of that. How did you decide to do that, to go that route with this in the first place? Great question. So there's two fundamental reimbursement systems that we, we deal with, and that's medical and pharmaceutical. And you're probably familiar with both, but certainly the pharmaceutical system is, you know, you get prescribed a, uh, an antibiotic or something, you go down to Rite Aid or CVS or Walmart, and you pick it up, and it's a pretty seamless experience. Medical can be more challenging, and that's traditionally what we've seen with things like um, insulin pumps, and they require quite a bit of paperwork on the, on the part of the physician and some challenging interactions on the part of the patient. And in our particular case, we were lucky enough that insulin pens are traditionally reimbursed through the pharmaceutical system, and that's really the, the direction you want to go to start with if you can. You have a little bit more control over certain things, and uh, it, it takes less time honestly. So it's a little atypical, uh, a device going through the pharmaceutical system, but it's sure been the right decision for us. Yeah. And, and with the product, like what, I mean, what has been the most challenging or some of the most challenging aspects of, of developing this product? Cause obviously you have so much experience in the industry itself and that's, that's something you've done for, for years and years. Like what, what has been the most challenging about getting this in pen developed in the first place? <laughs> wow. Um, there's so many things on that list. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> we got a little bit of time, um, Norris. <laughs> yeah. I would say, you know, knowing what it needs to be, we knew the problems we wanted to solve, but knowing exactly how to solve them in a way that didn't make sense to us, because that doesn't matter, makes sense to our users. That's what matters. And I remember actually one really good example um, so obviously our, our product is, is an automatic dose logging system and a lot more than that, but we want to be able to manually log a dose, right? You don't have your pen, you can enter it manually. And we, we put a plus button in the app for that. And then we went out and we did market research and human factors trials. And we said, you know, how would you add a manually log dose? And everybody hit the plus button and we slapped each other on the back. We said, what a great job we'd done. And then we asked them how they would add a dose reminder, and they hit the plus button. And then we asked them seven other questions, each of which they hit the plus button <laughs> for. And it got really depressing, right? Because they were so <laughs> sure what a great job we had done. And the reality was we'd done a horrible job. <laughs> and 
So we had to take a step back and, and remove that and do it a different way until we went out and tested it. And people did know how to use it for what it was for and not for a bunch of other things. Uh, that was really very challenging. But again, I think as a small company, that gave us a gift because those human factors trials that we did, we didn't contract them out to a huge human factors research firm and get a report back two months later. No, we had our engineers on site doing that testing themselves. And as those engineers saw people interact with the system they had built, it was very hard for them to then disagree with the testing. They sort of looked at it and said, all right, you're right. I, I did a bad job and I have to, I have to go do it again. Um, that was pretty powerful for us and allowed us to move very quickly. Yeah. And as you've, as you've gone on to develop, develop the NPAN and the company has grown, then how has that kind of team evolved? It's obviously you need some pretty smart people to do these things. How has that team evolved? How have you approached growing the team? Well, it's certainly bigger now. <laughs> uh, you know, at every day, almost every day of the company, we've always had our eye out for good people in every area. And we're lucky enough to be able to, when you find one of those people, you know, bring them on rather than wait until you have a particular need and then go find a person for that particular place who maybe isn't right for you. And we're lucky enough to be here in San Diego. And San Diego has been a hotbed of diabetes activity ever since, well, at least 2000, you know, early 2000s when Dexcom was growing and then Tandem. And we have several other great diabetes companies here in San Diego. Uh, so there's a lot of skill down here. And of course, our team is from many of these companies, and we knew a lot of these people. So um, it's it's been really very lucky for us. We've we found a tremendous team. Yeah, and you mentioned being able to bring them on when you find them, which is which is nice to have, obviously, and and that does take capital as well. So in terms of the fundraising side of it, how do you approach the fundraising side in terms of how fast you want to grow, how big you want to grow this? Like, how does that kind of factor into this this company? Yeah, I suppose the, um, the, the common answer is that, well, we decided to take the exact right amount of money and we <laughs> planned that out and we did that and we limited our, yeah. And then there's the real answer, which is, uh, everybody will tell you take every dollar you can get when you can get it. And, you know, as a small company, unproven it, in, in our case, without even a product in the early days, without even prototypes, raising money is a very, very hard thing to do. And we do it at low valuations. And what does that mean? It means those early investors that really took a chance on you, hopefully get paid back at some point you know, with really high multiples. And they should because they absolutely took the most risk with their own money um, without even any ability to come impact things. But you know, it's true. We would have loved to have raised more money. And I'm really glad that we didn't because there was a real strength in keeping the company super, super small for a while while we really had got clarity on what the product should be and the early development of it. And then when we had a prototype and it worked and you could show it to people and we knew what it was going to be, then we could raise more money to really ramp up manufacturing and sales and all those things and, and regulatory. But um, in the early days, it was a gift to have raised 
as little money as we did. Yeah, and it seems like you'd have to be you have to be scrappier to be very aware of how you're allocating resources when you don't have all that many, um, or not as many as maybe you would like to have. Let's just say, um, and then forces you to kind of make the right decisions or make decisions that will help the company grow. And one of the things you just mentioned is manufacturing. Like, how has manufacturing side of things gone? I don't know how much like what your experience is on that level. On that side of things as well, how has the manufacturing been for you? You know, it's been great. Um, we have, I suppose, I suppose we were smart enough to bring in a lot of our engineers with manufacturing experience. These are people I've worked with in the past. Yeah. So they had lived challenges in manufacturing a number of times. So we were able to take all those things into account when we designed the first product. And that doesn't mean that we may design a product that was perfect for lights out manufacturing by automated systems. No, but we did think through the process of how it was going to be built and what the challenges were going to be. And we, we went into it with our, with our eyes open. And then we were able to bring in a great head of manufacturing who we'd worked with before again, who's really just knocked it out of the park. Um, so it's gone very well. Uh, we also, I'd say the thing is we don't really need a lot of automation in our product which is wonderful because automation lines take a tremendous amount of money to design, a tremendous amount of time. Then they never work for a while. And then if you need to replicate them, it takes so much more money and time and troubleshooting. Whereas for us, we just put a bunch more benches in place. Yeah. Just been awfully nice. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And and one thing is too, I want, want to make sure we cover in here is, is partnerships. So what kind of role have partnerships played in, in the companion's growth so far? And kind of how do you see that moving forward as well? Yeah, so one of the things Companion believes is that as a user, you own your data. Uh, if you take an injection of insulin, for example, uh, the electronic record of that injection should be yours. I mean, you could just as easily have typed it into a system. We just did it electronically for you. Um, so therefore, you should be able to share that data with anybody you want. And that's why we share our data with Apple Health. So in addition to all of our official partnerships, and we have a bunch of those, Anybody who wants can come in, write an app for the iPhone, pull that data from Apple Health. Now, I'm not going to make any comments here about uh, FDA and clearances. Obviously, they need to follow all the rules associated with that. But the data is there to be consumed and used any way they want. And in fact, we don't even know all of the ways people are using that data today, which is actually pretty cool. Uh, but I will say a few things. You know, there are... Um, there's a lot of things we can do to improve the lives of people with diabetes. And one way you have to do that is to bring together both insulin and blood glucose data. And if you can bring those two things in one place, it just opens up a whole new world of what we can do for the user, for the healthcare provider. And for that, I'll call out Dexcom specifically. Dexcom is a company I have a lot of past at. Some of our other employees here have a lot of past at. And they're really the leader in, in continuous glucose monitoring technology. And luckily here in San Diego, and we have a data partnership with them where we're sharing data back, back and forth in order to enable all of those really aggressive things that we can do when you bring those two data sets together. And that's actually pretty new in diabetes. Normally, it's just either insulin or blood glucose. And this is one of the first places that you can bring it together, certainly in injection or injection users. Yeah. And what other, I mean, what other things are you, are you trying to do in terms of just kind of zooming out again, a big picture? Uh, obviously there's so many things you, you could do, like you mentioned before, there's so many, um, aspects of the product you could do in the beginning, but you have to choose certain things. Like what are some of those 
bigger picture things you'd want to do with the company moving forward? Well, sure. I'll say this one. I'll be a little general, but right now when you have diabetes and, you know, we really haven't talked too much about what the actual disease is, but, you know, basically it's an inability to control your blood sugar, right? And five times a day, your blood sugar is going to go up. You're going to take some insulin. Your blood sugar is going to go down. Maybe it gets too low. So you have to eat to bring it back up again. So now you have to take more insulin to bring it down. And this is, again, you know, four, five, six times a day. It's really overwhelming. But the way we manage that today is to just basically tell people, check your blood sugar every once in a while. And then if something is wrong, deal with it. And that's a really bad (laughs) way to manage your blood sugar, right? Instead, it should be tell somebody, you know what? There's a problem now and I want you to deal with it now but I'm not going to bug you in two hours or whatever it is when I know everything is fine. That basically is the promise of what's called artificial pancreas. So these new smart insulin pumps with CGM sensors and all this stuff brought together and it's great, but we can do similar things for injection users here. We can basically reduce the amount you think about this disease we call diabetes that at least I think about a hundred times a day. I'd love to reduce that to, five or 10 or whatever it is. And uh, there's an awful lot that the in-pen system can do when paired with other technologies like CGM to make that possible for people. And that's a meaningful impact to um, patients' lives. We talked earlier about what the product needs to be and what kind of market research we did. Well, what did we hear time and time again? We heard diabetes is a pain in the butt. I just don't want to think about it so much. So it's products that impact that that we're most excited about. Yeah, and with that, with trying to solve that problem and make it as you know, a, make it less uh, cumbersome, I should say, for for people with diabetes. I read that you had like 175 issued patent issued and pending patent applications. Like, how much does that play a role in the company itself? Then having these different applications for that in terms of protecting the company or or anything else, how does that play a role in the company? Great question. So, I mean, I've been a medical device engineer for a long time. So all those 175 applications are not all for companion. Right. Uh, they're, you know, all the companies I've ever worked for. And I've been very lucky to work with really great uh, intellectual property teams who pursue all those patents so that, you know, because I certainly didn't do all of the work <laughs> on every one of yeah. these. Um, but it's critically important, right? When we're we're fundraising, you know, we learn that there's 10 issues or whatever it is that um, investors want to hear about from you. What's the problem? What's the solution? You know, et cetera. And one of them is barriers to entry. And that can mean a lot of things, but intellectual property is a really great answer to that. If we have patents on whatever it is that we're doing, um, you know, it limits other people's ability to do it. It just makes your company that much more valuable. Uh, There are other ways to answer that question. If you're doing something technologically challenging, uh, that somebody would have a hard time copying. Well, that's a great barrier to entry. If you're doing something that takes a ton of capital uh, that nobody's willing to invest in, well, that's a, a great barrier to entry. But for us, intellectual property has been a big one. Yeah, and and moving forward then with the company too, like what are what are some of the challenges you foresee that you know you're going to have to kind of try to figure out? What are some of those uh, things you see moving forward? <laughs> you know, I think. One of the challenges that I foresee, at least for me personally, is the same challenge that I've dealt with since the beginning of the company. And I probably didn't see this before 
who started the company because you know before you start a company it's just company you either have a company or you don't yeah. right but that's not the case at all every three months or six months or it better be more often than a year the company is fundamentally different than it was six months before and running that company at any one of those stages is comparatively easy but in identifying the fact that your company is now different and you need to be different that can be hard right because what you did yesterday doesn't necessarily work today or tomorrow and for me that's an ongoing challenge as we grow as fast as we're growing and as the challenges shift from you know design to regulatory to manufacturing to now sales and then reimbursement even um the the issues that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis just change completely and you need to change with it. Um, so I'd say that's the biggest one for me. It's just, you know, I don't know what the issue du jour tomorrow will be, but we'll figure it out and we'll get through it. Um, but it's important to know that there is one. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do have- yes. <laughs> there's, and there's always more challenges, right? I and mean, there's literally always, if that's what you sign up for always. in entrepreneurship. And-, and they're always different, oddly. Yeah. Why can't they be the same? <laughs> Because someone we would we would have figured it out already, <laughs> exactly. of course. And knowing that though, like knowing that there are these different challenges, I'm curious as to with with being an entrepreneur now, like how do you kind of learn or or grow to be able to handle things or be able to improve your thinking or even just kind of being able to improve improve like how you manage your time. Like, what are some of those resources that have been helpful for you? Whether it be like books or podcasts or conferences or talking to other smart people. Like, what is it that's helped you? all of those things. Um, I, you know, I try and read all of the, the books that get suggested to me. We always can't get through all of it. Um, you know, listen to the podcast while I ride my mountain bike, etc. I mean, you, you just want to take in so many of these examples. And I think that listening to other people's experiences for me has been really helpful. I, I don't know that when I hear in advice where people say, this is what you need to do. It's at least for me, usually wrong. But when I hear, hey, this is what happened to me and this is how I handled it, uh, that's been very helpful. Are there any specific books that uh, you've enjoyed that have been helpful for you? You know, The Lean Startup by Eric Ries, of course, is one of the stereotypical books that everybody's supposed to read these (laughs) days. And I think if you can't speak the language of The Lean Startup, then um, you're probably not paying attention. And that's probably a little unfair, but it is it, it, you know, it is the world we, we live in. I mean, terms like MVP, you know, if you don't know these pivot, if you don't know them, then you just don't get to communicate. Right. Um, one I really liked quite a bit was the innovator's dilemma. Mm. And it actually even gives an example from my own industry. But the fundamental point, of course, is that across innovation, the metrics change. And that's why you have to believe in something so strongly because the world knows how to measure what it is that you're doing. Right, because they've been doing it for 20 years. And whatever your innovation is, if it's truly innovative, may not look very good based on those old metrics, but it's going to be really good on a new metric. (laughs) And we have to understand as innovators that it's going to take the world a little bit of time to catch up with that new metric. And that has to be okay. Sean, what if you had to go back? If you could tell yourself, like you know, before you started this company, you could you could tell yourself something, something you wish you would have done different. Would there be anything at all that comes to mind? <laughs> um, yeah, let's see. I mean, there's. A, I think the problem is not any one thing, right? It's it's so many things. Um, God, you, you 
I don't want to dwell on all of our challenges, but uh, even one or two things. Yeah. Fundraising is one of them. Um, I probably spent a little bit too much time on sort of the pitch circuit um, rather than just meeting with the one-off people who I think really can ultimately um, can write checks and can matter for you. Um, You think you do these pitch competitions and then, people are going to line up and, and write you checks or they're going to back up the truck full of money. And it's just really not the case. Investors, they don't like to come to you, right? Because that's somehow another subjugates them to you. They like you to come to them and you may have been up on stage and you might've been doing a great job and they might've even heard your argument and, and been intrigued by it. But that doesn't mean that that then introduces you to them and you can go meet them. So for me, that was not a great use of my time and I spent entirely too much time on it. Um, but there's a hundred of them. Yeah. And there's, there's always, there's always more and more things you wish you would have done done differently. That's just kind of how it goes in in entrepreneurship. And, um, that's good to know that in terms of the the fundraising thing too, because a lot of people are kind of thinking about that and they can, it is so important, but then you always try to figure out what is the best use of your time because that is the resource that is always constrained, especially in building a company. Um, so I think it's important that you mentioned that as well. And and one thing is too, I always have to ask people is like, how do you kind of either unwind, relax, recharge outside of work to be able to do your best work? What's outside of work? <laughs> and maybe the, the 20, minute, 20 minutes you're not in the office. <laughs> right. Uh, when, when I'm emailing. Right, right exactly. Uh, yeah, no, that's a great point. And I, I do think that you, I do think that it's important to get away from work a little bit. And, you know, maybe I'm not as good at it as I'd like to be. But, um, you know, for me, fitness is important. I like to ride my mountain bike and, you know, play with my kids and, you know, maybe do a little fishing. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I can never step away for too long. Um, and that's fine. Um, it can, it can come in little bursts. Um, it's amazing to me how sort of restorative, a, an hour long mountain bike can be. Um, so we'll have to take it the way we can get it. I yeah. guess. Oh, I, I think most entrepreneurs are kind of, they're just wired the same. They want to work. They want to spend time in the company, but everyone has a different strategy for kind of unwinding or recharging. And I've, this is actually the fourth podcast interview I've done today. And so everyone's had a different reaction to that question and it is it is interesting to hear that um that you know everyone has their own thing whether whether it be like exercise like you mentioned uh someone else mentioned like you know getting out into nature just similar thing as well uh it's always something that you need and doesn't have to be necessarily a long time but something that rejuvenates you because we do like to work nonstop, which is kind of how we seem to be wired well you know you just made me think about something though which is that i'm sure we all do need something outside of work and whatnot but Maybe when we think about being restored, we should think more about in work um, because so many of us do like to work so hard. And I think that's probably because we have companies that we like going to. Um, I love the product we make here and I love the people that we're making it for. And I love the people I get to make it with. Um, So for me, while sure work is work and it's tough, I love it. And, um, I can't imagine not coming here every day. So, um, sure. You know, I, I get stressed just like the next guy. I need to go, you know, knock on a mountain bike, but, um, I've, I've never been the kind of guy who needs to go on a two week vacation to get away from work. Yeah. Um, because I would just want to get back. Yeah. No, that's, that's a, that's a great point. Sean, as we kind of wrap things up here, I'm just curious as, is there any other advice you'd have for aspiring entrepreneurs out there? 
You know, I have one. This is my first company I've started completely from scratch. And I say it's very, very different from being an employee in one important way. And I don't think people always appreciate this. Um, you know, people would say, oh, you don't have a boss. And I suppose that's true. And they think that's a great thing. Well, it can be. But the biggest thing about that is that there's nobody giving you a list of things to do. And everything is your responsibility. And what that means is a million things that you never thought about as an employee of a company are now not getting done because you didn't even know they needed to be done. <laughs> and every one of those is your responsibility. So you have to be the kind of person that every day asks, what might I not be doing? And even though I have a million other things I'm not doing and I'm aware I'm not doing them, I'm going to spend a couple minutes of my day to go look into whether or not that's important. You know, employment law and insurance and, you know, how to pay people and just a hundred topics that you never thought of before as an engineer or a marketer or a salesperson or whatever it is that you did with your career. Um, and if you think that, quote, not having a boss is going to be free reign to just work on what you want to work on or spend all of your time on your product and not in meetings, um, you're probably going to fail pretty miserably because a company is more than that. A company is an idea and it's people and it's a legal entity and it's uh, proper books and it's, you know, a bank account with money in it and <laughs> all those things. They're all your responsibility. So if you're not prepared to take that, run and hide. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a lot more than people think. And, and Sean, where can people go to learn more about like, you and the company? Well, I'm, I don't think you want to learn more about me, but if you do, I suppose LinkedIn's the place <laughs> to go. But geez, pickle. Uh, certainly our website. Um I'd send people there first. Um, but more than that, if you really want to learn about us, come see us at a trade show. We do all the big uh, diabetes trade shows, ADA, ADE, TCOIDs, things like that. And uh, we'd love to love to show you the product. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Justin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.